Okay, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to read, what I'm going to do, I'm going to sort of read bits. We're just going to, obviously not going to unpack all four chapters verse by verse, uh, but we are going to touch on different bits and pieces. So I'm going to pray and then, and then I'll do bits, we'll sort of do a, bits of reading as we go along rather than have a, a kind of big reading at start. So, so let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, which is true. It's your inspired word and it's, uh, it's profitable for us, for, uh, for our for our good, to teach us, to warn us, to correct us, to inspire us. And uh, Father, I pray again this morning that it may do all those things for Jesus' sake. Amen. 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 So um, we're covering Ezekiel chapters uh, 8 to 11 this morning. And uh, if you were here last week, uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of judgment going on and um, there's not much let up this morning. Although there is some light at the end of the tunnel by the time we get to chapter 11. But I just want to sort of set, set some context for all that we are reading and set some context for why things are, are so bad for the people of God uh, at this time and uh, what's going on in, in Jerusalem and why there's been an, uh, why there's been an exile. That the basis for, for, for all of this is a covenant relationship between God and his people. Uh, it's not a contract, it's a covenant relationship. And in a covenant relationship to parties willingly enter into a commitment to each other and there are various things that form the basis of that commitment and the two parties that enter into it say well this is what we're signing up to this is what we're going to do and it's very clear from the outset that if you don't do these those things then things are going to go um, badly wrong so if we um you don't need to turn to it but i'm just going to read a couple of bits from uh, deuteronomy so this is before the people of God had, have entered into the promised land. They're on the cusp of entering into the promised land. And God is preparing them for how they're going to enjoy all the good things that he has for them. And Deuteronomy 26 verse 16, this is what uh, we read. The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways, that you will keep his decrees, commands and laws and that you will obey him. So the people of God have willingly signed up to this. They've said the Lord is our God and we will obey his decrees, commands and laws. Verse 18. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession, as he promised, and that you are to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame and honour, high above all the nations he has made, and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he has promised. So that's the covenant. The people of God have signed up to it willingly. We will worship you and you alone, and we will walk in your ways. That's their part of the covenant. And God's part is, uh, he said, you are my people, my treasured possession, Uh, I will set you in praise, fame and honour. And then in Deuteronomy 28, we get two lists. We get a list of blessings for obedience and a list of curses for disobedience. So this is before they go into the promised land. God is just spelling out exactly how this thing is going to work. Uh, So uh, Deuteronomy 28.1, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And then the chapter continues with 
All the blessings. And it's amazing, amazing blessings that the people of God will enjoy. But verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees, I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And then there is a very long list of curses and all the things that will happen if they don't keep the covenant. So that's the basis of their relationship. And it's like a marriage. I'm just going to read a little bit from uh, some of us have been married or are married and uh, will be familiar with, um, although probably some of you use the Book of Common Prayer, just looking around the room. But there we go. Uh, in, a, in a marriage service, you make declarations. The two parties to the covenant make a declaration. And uh, the bridegroom, and remember that in the Bible, uh, the language is used that God is the bridegroom and his people are the bride. It's used throughout the Bible, which is why we need to have a proper understanding of, of marriage, that God is the bridegroom and his people are the bride and the church is his bride. And in a marriage service, the, the minister says to the bridegroom, uh, uh, will you take and to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honour and protect her? And forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. So that's God's covenant to us, is that he'll love us, comfort, honour, and forsaking all others, be faithful to us as long as we both shall live. And God never breaks the covenant. God never breaks the covenant. He is never unfaithful. God enters into this relationship and he never breaks it. But then the bride says to the bridegroom, will you love him, comfort him, honour and protect him and forsaking all others, be faithful to him as long as you both shall live. Now, in Deuteronomy, the people of God make that commitment. They say, we will forsake all other gods. We will worship you and worship you alone and we will live in the way that you've asked us to live. And as we're, as we're going to see, they, they don't. They don't keep their side of the covenant. They don't forsake all others. Now, in, in a marriage, if, if one of the parties doesn't fulfil their side of the commitment, well, then, you know, we know. We know what happens. The relationship is, the relationship is ruined and you end up with, you know, with separation and you end up with divorce. It's a, it's a covenant relationship freely entered into. There are responsibilities and obligations on both sides and it only works if both sides keep to that. So that's just to kind of set the context for where we get into in chapter eight, because if you've um, got your Bibles open, the heading is idolatry in the temple. And Ezekiel is given, taken into another vision. And if you remember where we started in chapter one, Ezekiel has this this sort of vision of, um, you know, of, of, of the angels and this vision of heaven. And then he sees uh, the vision of God in all of his glory. And Ezekiel falls flat on his face in front of God. He sees God in all of his holiness. And we're back there again at the beginning of chapter eight, uh, verse two. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man from what appeared to be his waist down. He was like fire. Uh, from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand took me by the hair of my head. The spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem to the entrance to the north gate of the inner court. So in a vision, Ezekiel is being taken to Jerusalem, he's being taken to the temple and this is, this is the city that God has chosen. And the temple is the place where God 
where God resides. In the, in the middle of the temple is the Holy of Holies, the place where only one person, the high priest, once a year is allowed to enter in. It's the place where God has chosen to be present on earth and his people are gathered around him. It is the holiest place in the holiest city. But what do we read? Verse five, son of man, look towards the north. So I looked and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy right in the heart of the temple. So the the people of God have promised in Deuteronomy that we will worship God and worship him alone. The Ten Commandments, worship the Lord your God and him alone. Have no other gods before me. That's the promise that they've made. And now here we are in Ezekiel's day. And in the temple is this idol that provokes to jealousy. Scholars are not certain what this idol is, but it's possible, probable, that it is Asherah, who was the mother of Baal. Asherah is the the mother of Baal. Now, remember Baal, remember um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal and the great victory that Elijah has over the 400 prophets of Baal in the time of King Ahab and and, and Jezebel. And right here in the temple, they're worshipping an idol to Baal's mother. How far have they fallen from that wonderful day of victory that Elijah had, defeating the prophets of Baal? And here they are again, worshipping an idol. Uh, It goes on. Things just get worse and worse. Verse 6. Do you see what they're doing? The utterly detestable things the house of Israel is doing here that will drive me far from my sanctuary. Verse 9. Go in and see the wicked and detestable things they are doing. So I went in and looked and I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things and detestable animals and all the idols of the house of Israel. So this is right in the heart of heart of Jerusalem, in the heart of the temple, and they're, in likelihood they are worshipping the gods of Egypt, because it's the gods of Egypt that are usually portrayed as, as animals. So these are the gods that God delivered them from when they crossed the Red Sea on the night of the Passover, when God delivered them. The, the ten plagues in the time of Moses, the, the, the significance of the ten plagues was each one was destroying and defeating one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And now here they are worshipping those same things. They've gone back to the slavery that they came from and they're worshipping idols. Verse 11, in front of them stood 70 elders of the house of Israel. Each had a censer in his hand and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. He said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each at the shrine of his own idol. They say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. What a devastating indictment of how far the people of God have fallen from their knowledge of the one holy God. The Lord doesn't see us. Doesn't matter what we do. God doesn't see. The Lord has forsaken the land. The thing that, the, 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 that they've fallen into is they've kind of fallen into this place where they think, well, actually, God isn't who he, who he said he was. God isn't as powerful as we thought he was you know the, the people of God in, a, in Ezekiel's day they lived in a culture where there were there were dozens of different gods who were worshipped every country had its own god every you know every mountain had a god every plain had a, every forest had a god and what you what you did was you you appeased those different gods and what they've come to the point of is they're thinking well actually well, well Yahweh isn't much cop is he because we've been exiled from our land and we've been exiled from Jerusalem. So 
So maybe Yahweh, Yahweh's the wrong horse to back here because he hasn't turned out as strong as we thought he was. Maybe we should back a, a stronger horse. Maybe we should worship some of the gods of the Babylonians. Maybe that will get us into, into a better place. They've, they've, they've gone to this place where they think their troubles are the result of God's weakness. And so often we do the same thing. So often when things go badly, who gets the blame? God. So often when things don't work out in the way that we thought they should, or when we feel we've been let down, or when some calamity comes upon us, what's the first thing people do is, 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 is they, they think, well, 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 I'm not going to believe in God because he's let me down. God isn't faithful. God has abandoned us. So often in the Old Testament, that's the, the people of God get themselves in a mess and their instinct is to say, well, God has let us down. And that's what they're doing here. The reality is we're in this mess because of our sin. The people of God are in, their, in a mess because they've broken their side of the covenant. Our world, our lives are so often in a mess. Not because God is unfaithful. He never breaks his side of the covenant. But we've broken our side. We live in a world of suffering. We live in a world of sin. And it affects each and every one of us. This particular suffering that we may experience may not be the direct result of our own sin, but it is certainly the result of living in a fallen world, a world which has broken the covenant. That's why they're in the mess that we're in. When we are in those places, we always have to remember that, that actually whatever suffering I may be experiencing, it's not God's fault. He established a covenant And he never breaks it. He's always faithful. If there's a problem, it's always at our end. It's always because we've broken the covenant. And the people of God are in a mess because they can't see that. And as chapter 8 goes on, it just gets, gets worse and worse. Verse 16, he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. They were bowing down to the sun in the east. So literally, here are the people of God in the temple. And what are they, you know, literally, what are they showing God? They're showing God their backsides because they're bowing down to worship the sun in the east. And the the temple faces east, west. um, End of verse 17. Look at them putting the branch to their nose. Look at them putting that. The the, the idiom is that literally sticking two fingers up. It's basically what they're doing. They have utterly rejected their side of the covenant. And so God says, I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. So the people of God, as we were thinking last week, they are in such a mess. And judgment is falling. But they shouldn't have been surprised because God spelt it out. 400 years earlier before they even entered the promised land if you do this this is what will happen if you do that that is what will happen and it's happening chapter 9 the judgment begins to fall in a vision Ezekiel sees judgment falling on the city of Jerusalem Uh, there are there are verse 2 I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate which faces north each with a deadly weapon in his hand With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. 
So judgment is going to fall. Ezekiel is seeing what is going to happen to Jerusalem. He is seeing in vision the destruction of Jerusalem that is to come. Uh, the Lord called to the man clothed in linen, end of verse 3, who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So judgment is coming, but some will be spared. Judgment is coming, but some will be spared. Who is it that are spared? Well, it's those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So there are some who see all that's going on. They see the idolatry. They see the idol worship. They see the injustice. They see the way people are being exploited and it, and it breaks their hearts. They know that it's not right. They know that God is holy and they know that they're, they're being unholy and it, and it breaks their hearts. And God says that those ones will be marked and they will be saved. And so often through the Bible, you see this as a foretaste of, of what will happen in the New Testament. So again, the Passover, the people of God, as they're being led out of, uh, rescued from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land, what does God say? He says, slaughter a lamb and daub the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the door frames of your house. And when the angel of death comes over Egypt, he will pass over the houses with the blood on the door frames. It's a foretaste of what Jesus will do in the New Testament. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples and he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Where Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, he's not talking particularly about people who've been bereaved. He's talking about people who see the state of the world. They see the state of sin that they are in and it grieves them because they know that God is holy. It's the same as the Old Testament, the same as the New Testament. It's when we we understand the wretchedness of our sin. The wretchedness of the fact that we are unholy and unrighteous and we stand before a God who is holy. And in Jesus Christ, we too can be marked for salvation. Uh, Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 13, writing to the Christians at Ephesus, he says this, You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So in the Old Testament, in the time of Ezekiel, the people needed to be marked for salvation. And so do we. And how are we marked for salvation? Well, we're marked for salvation by responding to the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, it sometimes um, concerns me when I, sometimes I read things or, or see things and I, uh, and I see people say things like um, that we're all children of God. I, I was reading it again um, this week. Uh, and just speaking, you know, broadly of, of all people, I say, well, we're all created by God and so we're all children of God. Well, that's not what the Bible says. 
The Bible says we are all created by God. It doesn't say that we're all children of God. Uh, We're not. Uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 1, verse 12. uh, To all who received him, received Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, We're not born as children of God. Uh, We're born as God's creatures, but in order to become children of God, uh, we have to believe in his son, Jesus Christ, and receive him. And how do we receive Jesus? By grieving our sin, by recognising that we've fallen short of our, his glory, by recognising that we've broken the covenant and we need rescue, we need saving. And that salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. And when we do that, when we make that response and we receive God's Holy Spirit, well, then we're children and then we're marked. So um, Ezekiel has this vision and what, hap- what he sees, it happens, the, the, uh, the man dressed in linen goes through and marks those in the city. Uh, but the others are slaughtered. Verse five, as I listened, he said to the others, follow him through the city and kill without p- showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men and maidens, women and children. But do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were in front of the temple. So God's, God's judgment falls and it is terrible. It is terrible, but it shouldn't have come as a surprise because God said from the outset, look, this, this, is, this is what will happen. This is what, and, it's, and it's happening. And God is just being faithful to his side of the covenant. And his people have been unfaithful to their side of the covenant. And so judgment falls, but... There is salvation for those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. And so judgment falls, but some are saved. The man in linen, verse 11, chapter 9, with the writing kit at his side, brought back words saying, I have done as you commanded. And then chapter 10 is the most, it's just, it's the, it's the most wretched chapter. It's the saddest chapter. It's the most heartbreaking chapter Uh, It has the heading in the New International Version, the glory departs from the temple. The glory departs from the temple. I I, um, I said at the start, I was just using that analogy of, you know, of a marriage, that in a marriage, two people enter voluntarily into a covenant commitment and both sides say, look, this is what we will do. Well, if you're in a covenant relationship and the other party, you know, doesn't fulfill what they've said they're going to do, then in the end, you get up and leave. In the end, things get, again, things get so bad, you get up and leave because the covenant is not being fulfilled. And in chapter 10, that's what we see. God's glory, his very presence departs the temple. Verse 18 of chapter 10, then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. It's the most... Um, tragic thing when you think back to Solomon building the temple uh, hundreds of years ago and the temple being dedicated uh, and there's this um, uh, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8 we read about the temple being dedicated the ark of the covenant uh, this box that contains the the tablets that Moses had written the 10 commandments on 
And they're brought into the holy, the holy place, the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. And 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord had filled the temple. The glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. It's like that first um, marriage day where the two parties have, have come together and have pledged their covenant commitment to each other. And then almost immediately, it begins to go wrong. Almost immediately, Solomon begins to marry other wives and to worship their gods and idolatry begins to enter in. But that was the glory day. And now here we are hundreds of years later and the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold. God is incredibly patient. Remember last week we were thinking, you know, poor old Ezekiel, you know, he lies on his side for 390 days Uh, And then for another 40 days and each day represents a year. And all of those years are years where God has been patient, years where his people have been trashing the covenant. And God has been patient. God has been sending prophet after prophet to say, you know, if you carry if you carry on the way that you are, judgment will fall. But there's still time to turn back. There's still time to change. And God is so patient with us, isn't he? You know, so often people say, well, if there's a God, why is, why is the world in such a mess? Why does God allow such suffering? Why does God allow the world to have so much suffering in it and so much injustice and so much pain and so much grief and so much calamity? It's because he is incredibly patient with us. It's because he waits as long as possible, gives us as many opportunities as possible to turn. But in the end, judgment will come. Uh, Again, in uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, in one of uh, Jesus's parables about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like, uh, he, he, he says this. Uh, uh, he t- tells this parable of the weeds where wheat and weeds are sown together. Uh, and he says, you know, and, 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 uh, he says, no, they, they must both grow together. But in the end, there will be a, there will be a separation the weeds will be burnt up uh, and, the, and the harvest will be taken in. And he gives an explanation to his disciples. Uh, he said, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire... So it will be at the end of the age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteousness, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. So there's no difference in the New Testament to the Old Testament. God is holy. God is patient. Judgment will fall, but there is a way of salvation. But in chapter 10 of Ezekiel, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple as, um, uh, uh, as judgment begins to come. And then in chapter 11, 
Uh, God speaks in a vision to the leaders who are left in Jerusalem. Remember, Ezekiel is with the exiles in Babylon. And the ones who've been left in Jerusalem, well, they think they're, they think they're you know, they're, they're kind of the kingpins. They're thinking, well, we're doing all right. We haven't been exiled. We're going to be OK because God will never abandon his city. God will never abandon the temple. Uh, we're the ones who've been left behind. The exiles, well, they're in trouble, but we're OK. Uh, they have this um, saying in chapter 11, verse 3. They say, will it not soon be time to build houses? This city is a cooking pot and we are the meat. They're like, you know, we're, we're doing fine. You know, God doesn't care what we do. He's not going to abandon us. Uh, you know, the exiles are gone. We're in charge now. Uh, God says, verse 6, you have killed many people in the city and filled its streets with the dead. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The bodies you have thrown there are the meat, and this city is the pod, but I will drive you out of it. Uh, verse 11, this city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be the meat in it. I will execute judgment on you at the borders of Israel, and you will know that I am the Lord. For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Remember God's promise back in Deuteronomy. He said, I'm going to make you a nation more glorious than any other nation in the world. And now here they are. You have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. You have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. It's so, so tragic. But chapter 11, verse 16, some light at the end of the tunnel, some hope. Some promise of what is going to come. Verse 16, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I've been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you back the land of Israel again. They will return to it and remove all its vile images and detestable idols. I will give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. I will remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done declares the sovereign Lord. So a couple of things. I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. You know, they're just getting what they, what they deserve. You know, God has said, if you do this, this is what will happen. And they've done it. And now it's happening. He's just saying, well, you're getting what you deserve. You've broken the covenant and this is what happens. But there's rescue. And the, the wonderful thing is, the interesting thing is, where does salvation come from? Where does the salvation come from? Remember that the, the leaders of, of Jerusalem at the time are thinking, well, well, we're going to be the salvation because we're the meat in the pot. You know, we're the ones who are doing well. And uh, where does salvation come from? Well, it comes from those who've been exiled. It comes from outside the city. It comes from those who've been driven away. They're the ones who will return and establish the, the, the new Israel. When I, was, um, uh, when I was a child on Good Friday, uh, we always sang this hymn that began um, with the words, there is a green hill far away without a city wall. 
And uh, when I was a child, I used to think, well, why does it matter that the city didn't have a wall? Why is that an important detail that it's a city that doesn't have a, you know, it's a city without a wall? I thought, why is that important? It was only when I grew a bit older that I realised it was just funny language uh, to say there is a green hill far away outside a city wall. That's the point. It's the green hill was outside of the city wall because uh, where was Jesus crucified? He was crucified outside of the city. If you go to Jerusalem and you see and you go to the garden tomb, uh, where is it? It's outside the city because Jesus was the one who was rejected. He was the one who was exiled. He was the one who was sent away. He was the one who gave up his life outside the city. But he was the one who brought salvation. He was the one who restored Israel. He was the one who restored the presence of God to the heart of the people. But he was the one who was driven away. Remember in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Uh, Salvation comes from outside the city. And here we have a foretaste of that because God is saying that salvation is going to come, not from those of you that are left in the city thinking that you're the meat in the pot salvation is going to come from those who have been exiled those who've been driven out it's amongst those that I will bring restoration and redemption it's amongst those that there will be grief for sin and mourning for unrighteousness and unholiness and a turning back to me it's amongst them that I will restore the covenant that they ha- that you have broken and then I will bring them back and there's this promise that God will bring his people back they had to wait two and a half thousand years for the promise to be fulfilled for them to be brought back to the land of Israel in 1947 two and a half thousand years the people of God had to wait but God keeps his promises he keeps his side of the covenant he's never unfaithful he never lets us down And so as we think about um, all of these things, uh, what's the, the, you know, the lesson for us, as always, as we've been thinking over these past weeks, is is to remember that God is who he is. He is who he said he is. He is a God of holiness. He is a God who is jealous for his name. He is a God who is holy and a God who is loving. Uh, And in his love, he reaches out to us. In his love, he's patient with us in his love he provides a way of salvation because we need saving because we are not holy we are wretched in our sin and are falling short of his glory and without him we have no hope but with him we have hope for eternal life and we discover that hope simply by turning to Jesus asking for his mercy asking for his forgiveness coming in humility coming as Ezekiel did and falling flat on our faces before him and asking for his redemption and as a church community 
that's the message that we have to proclaim. I remember um, uh, a few weeks ago when we just, I think, finishing off Luke's gospel and, uh, you know, the final thing that Jesus says to his disciples, the message that he wants them to take to the world is tell people to repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Turn around, recognise your sin, turn to the God who loves you, say sorry and believe the good news, which is the salvation provided by Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the message that we must proclaim. Yes, God loves everyone. But not everyone yet is his child because a judgment is coming. So let's take a let's take a few moments and um, just a few moments of quiet just to think about the things that we've been thinking about this morning. And um, Father, what are the things that you want us to, uh, to to take on board this morning? What are the things that you want us to remember in the coming days? Lord, how do you want us to respond? Father, maybe we've become complacent. Complacent with um, our relationship with you. Perhaps we've conformed too much to the standards of the world. Father, maybe there are things that we need to repent of and turn from this morning. Father, you you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, we would give you permission this morning to search our hearts. To show us where we need to change. Father, I pray for the times when we've blamed you for things that have gone wrong in our lives. And we've said that it's your fault, that you've let us down. Father, may we know in these moments that you you never let us down, you never break your side of the covenant. You are always faithful. And Father, for those times where we've blamed you, we, uh, we're sorry. Sorry for thinking that you could possibly be unfaithful. For thinking that we were wiser than you were. And Father, for if we've not yet accepted what you've done for us and accepted the good news of Jesus, if we're still your creatures but not yet your children, Father, I pray even this morning that we might reach out to you and believe in your son Jesus and receive him into our lives. Father, thank you that you are a good and gracious God. May we walk in your ways. May we keep your commandments. Thank you for the promise that you made to Ezekiel that has become our reality, that you 
Fill us with your spirit and enable us to live your ways. So, Father, have your way with us this morning. And continue to lead us in the days to come. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.